All right. Thanks, guys, so much for, for having me. Um, we were talking a little bit at, at my table and just really appreciating uh, a place like this that is willing to talk about the, the hard issues, right? I think too often in the church, we feel like this is something that we can't talk about. Like addiction is the thing like, uh, let's, not, let's not go there because we're afraid of maybe our own stuff that's going to come up or maybe there are uh, some misnomers or uh, stereotypes that we have with addiction. And so I so much appreciate uh, what Nick and this church has done to, to really open up this space for conversation about really difficult uh, issues. So I'm hoping that our time together that we have is, is a conversation. I uh, do not have all the answers, spoiler alert. So just wanting you to, to know that I want us to be able to dialogue uh, back and forth a little bit about this. So maybe just to start out, maybe turn to uh, a buddy or maybe somebody you don't know and just kind of talk a little bit, what is addiction for you? How would you conceptualize or identify addiction? So turn to somebody next to you and maybe take just a minute and let, let's kind of set a baseline for what we think addiction is. All right. What, uh, Maybe a couple people, what, what were some of the things you talked about or what were some of your ideas or, or perceptions of addiction? No wrong answers here. I mean, probably not. Needing more. Needing more? Right, okay. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, thanks Diane. I believe addiction is people's way of coping. Okay. I like that. Yes. Jeez, did you guys read my notes? This is, <laughs> look at you guys. This is fantastic. So, yeah, all good. Absolutely. Coping, ways to not think, ways to not feel. Uh, so what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to differentiate a little bit between substance uh, addiction and process addiction. So substance addiction, well, we think of drugs, alcohol, kind of those types of issues. Process addiction, which is a little bit more of what I work with in my practice, are more like uh, overeating or eating, uh, shopping, uh, sex addiction, uh, pornography. I'm actually a certified sex addiction counselor and uh, one of the, the questions was why, why that? And honestly, it seemed to be almost every uh, either couple or individual that I worked with, this was, if it was not the main issue, it was in the top three of, of issues that uh, people were struggling with. And so um, we're gonna focus our time kind of in the process addiction arena. And um, the, the way that I have conceptualized it or the way I've kind of wrapped my mind around this and what I've read is this idea of addiction being less about the behavior and more about what's driving the behavior. Again, like some people talked about, uh, you know, coping and a way not to feel. Uh, the way the the term I like to use whenever I have somebody who comes in to say you know I'm addicted to pornography or sex the first thing I like to do is start to reframe their view of addiction and themselves as an intimacy disorder this is this is not something where oh I just like to um, look at pornography or I just like to uh, eat you know a whole box of ho-hos or whatever it is this is not about the behavior it's about 
th this emptiness that maybe is going along inside somebody and this idea of intimacy or being alone and not having that intimacy. You think of intimacy and it's not just sex, it's this idea of being wholly known by somebody else. And sometimes, probably for all of us, that is absolutely terrifying. And the way we get around that, because I think we are designed to be intimate with one another, to have that mutual vulnerability, the way we deal with that is a lot of times through addiction, is through coping and not dealing maybe with what's really going on. So I, I kind of want us to, to have in our mind, uh, again, not that there's anything wrong with maybe the, uh, the definitions that we have, but start to reframe a little bit of addiction being more about an intimacy disorder or this fear of vulnerability. And we'll kind of circle around um, to that. So as you're, you're thinking, maybe just one or two people, how does that fit in your definition? Does that feel like, oh, that's some uh, therapist mumbo jumbo? Or how does that fit? Maybe just one or, one or so, uh, how, how does this work? Tell us more. I think it's really interesting when you said, like, there's, like, a loneliness or that there's, like, a, like a whole, like, that, that person who is addicted, you know, to whatever, like, there's, there's like, something that they don't have, so they supplement it. You know, with something else. Right. And again, this is something that we're starting to learn. And this is this is something that was this new for me as I started to study more and read more. It was kind of like an aha moment a little bit for me of, oh, wow, this is so much more than getting somebody to stop doing an addiction. I think that's where the church has really sucked is just saying, hey, stop doing this. Stop doing this. Well, well, crap, if it was that easy, we would, not, we would not do these things, right? I mean, if we are all fairly intelligent people, and if it was just about stopping, we would stop. But there's something that's driving us. And a lot of times we don't even know what that is. And, and so hopefully, you know, here we can, again, through this conversation, we can start taking what we're learning here and what we're discovering here and take it outside to this, to be the good news. That's what the church has been called to do is not to be the heavy hand or the hammer, but we've been called to be the good news. And uh, I think hopefully uh, communities like this are, are starting to perpetuate that, um, that calling of being the good news. Um, so there, there is the, this whole, there is this intimacy disorder, and then there's also a, a chemical piece to process addictions. And we're starting again to, to learn more about the neurobiology of what goes on uh, with addiction. I think a lot of times it was thought, well, substance and drug abuse, they, they alter our brain chemistry and, and that's really difficult. And what we're finding actually is that even the process addictions uh, are altering our, our brain activity as well. Uh, so we're gonna talk a little bit about the impact of addiction on the, on the brain. And, and again, a lot of my work comes from sexual addiction. So maybe some of my anecdotes will be a little bit uh, skewed in that direction. But I do think there is, we can cross, um, cross different addictions and kind of say similar things. So I want uh, everyone to put uh, your hand, right hand in the air like you just don't care. And then take your thumb, wrap it in, and fold it over. This is your brain. Now some, this may be a very close representation of your brain, but okay, you can put your hands down. This is really fantastic. I felt like I was 
leading a revolution. Uh, so I want you to think of this as your brain. So here, right here, we have your limbic system, okay? Your limbic system is in charge of all your instinctual kind of fight or flight mentality of this is your, oh crap, it's about to get real. I need to do something, right? Not like, what should I do? But this is how our ancestors stayed alive from saber-toothed tigers. It's, oh, that bush is wrestling. I need to get the heck out of Dodge and uh, get to safety, right? So we have this instinct and, you know, we still have that, right? There's not saber-toothed tigers running around, but we still have this fight or flight uh, mentality. So take a quick second, turn to a partner, a buddy. When was the last time you felt that fight or flight kind of rise up inside you? When, uh, if we're going to get technical, when was your limbic system activated? When, uh, maybe one or two people, what was the, the last time you kind of felt that fight or flight rise up inside you? Yesterday. Oh, man. Okay. What, what was going on yesterday? This is fresh. Just a little confrontation with a coworker. Okay. <laughs> Everyone laughs, but we've all been there. Yeah, it's okay. Laugh away. I'm laughing at myself too. Thirty seconds later, I thought, "Oh man, I wish I didn't say that, but I said this instead." Because sure. what I responded, I mean, was was okay, but it wasn't the response that I could have given if I thought about it for a few seconds. Right. And what if I told you this may be dangerous? That's not your fault. That's your brain's fault. Fine. Great. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, so, but why I say that, so you've got, the, you've got the limbic system, the fight or flight, and what happens is that gets activated, right? And what happens is we call that flipping the lid because this part is your cerebral cortex. And this is the one that talks about, uh, kind of is the part of your brain that's in charge of awareness and perception and thought, kind of rational thinking. So you've got the, the cerebral cortex, the prefrontal cortex. Research has, is continuing to push back the age that it says that this part of your brain is actually fully developed. They say this part is not, your, is not fully developed until you are 30 years old. So 30 or under, again, you've got neurobiological excuses for making stupid decisions. <laughs> again, you're welcome. After that, it's a little touch and go if you're after over 30. But what happens is when this gets activated, everything is here and not here. So it's why when we have a, a situation like that, when we're in that fight or flight, you're not able to think rationally because that part of your brain is not online. It's offline and you're just now thinking in this fight or flight 
And uh, it's why 30 seconds later, you're, you're like, what? why in the world did I say that or do that? It's because now your prefrontal cortex has now come back online and you're starting to think rationally and be like, oh, that was probably not the best thing to say to somebody that I work with. Um, but this part is starting to get uh, overactive. And what happens in addiction is this part of your brain starts releasing what's called dopamine. And dopamine is this chemical that is the I've gotta have it chemical. It, it's kind of in charge of um, motivation, expectation, and anticipation. So that's the, that's the chemical that is coursing through your veins after you finish a Netflix show. And that little part at the bottom says, next show begins in five, four. And you're like, oh geez. Stranger Things is so good. What's going to happen to Eleven and Mikey? And, and that dopamine is starting to course through your body, starting to course through your brain, starting to, to rise up the motivation. And that's when you click the, okay, one more probably isn't the end of the world. And you go ahead and click watch next episode. But that's what's going on in your brain with addiction as well. It, the dopamine is starting to course through your your brain and it's starting to say i've got to have it i've got to have it and uh, what tends to happen in addiction is uh, th there's no governor there's no thing stopping it so it just keeps producing more and more and more and after a while this part of your brain starts to get tired it starts to get annoyed because it feels like the limbic system that is shoving all this dopamine at it is too much it gets overwhelmed and so this part gets tired of sending the dopamine it's like man i keep sending this right so the addiction i keep doing this i keep doing this and the cerebral cortex starts putting its its hands over its ears saying this is too much this is too overwhelming and so it starts to shut down and this part of your brain says, oh, I need to start doing more. So it starts yelling. And what happens when somebody yells, you put your hands over your ears more. And so it's like your brain is fighting itself um, as it's continuing to, to throw this dopamine. That's what's going on in the brain of somebody who is struggling with addiction because it, it, it's pushing, it's pushing, it's pushing. And when the, the limbic system stops sending the dopamine. Again, dopamine is a good thing, um, but in excess, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to the brain. And so what happens, again, gets exhausted. And when it gets exhausted, when the dopamine starts to, to plummet, starts to go down, um, that's, when, that's when we have depression. That's when depression comes in of, okay, no, nothing is worth you know, doing and I'm feeling so overwhelmed, I'm feeling so exhausted. And so what does the person who's struggling with addiction do? They go to more, they go to that thing that they know is gonna get them that dopamine rush. So they go to the website, they go to the pantry to get something to eat. They, um, you know, whatever that addiction, however that addiction has manifested itself, they go to that and it spikes them for a little bit. But again, we all, uh, or maybe most of us know through addiction, it always progresses, right? Addiction always progresses. So for a while it was, I just needed this, but now I need this and then this, and it just keeps piling up. And the excess, again, is starting to throw off 
the uh, entire the entire system. And so we're in this vicious cycle now of I'm, I'm in the throes of my depression and so I need something to get out of it. So I go to my the thing that uh, my addiction has manifest itself as and that gets me spiked. That gets kind of my brain going. But then that's not enough. And so I dip and I dip into depression and then I've got to go back up. And so it's this horrible cycle of Again, this, this loneliness, we go back to that intimacy of not reaching out and, and talking to somebody else, but we're, it's just this vicious, vicious cycle that is continuing to course inside of us. Um, and it's painful and it's scary and it's sad. Um, so I, I wanna take a second, I know I threw a lot at you. It, it seemed kind of nice and when we we're doing the hand puppet thing, but, um, what, what are you hearing me say? I want to we'll pause for a second. What are you, what are you hearing me say with um, the, the neurobiology or the, the science of addiction? What, what is either an interesting thing that you've heard, something that you're like, oh, I'm not quite sure about that, Taylor? What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, for especially women, I know I can relate to that best, you know, your menstrual cycles with estrogen flows and progesterone, things like that, all yeah. that cycles, um, how insulin helps to counteract sugars in the blood, so on and so forth. And yeah. There can be more examples. With dopamine, is there any sort of biological counteraction that your body has? Yes. This is great. <laughs> You're like my plant. Um, there was some was his name Mailer uh yes no thank you that's that's fantastic again um so I I will get into that the the counter uh, the counter to dopamine is oxytocin and oxytocin is not something that that can be done by ourselves you cannot produce oxytocin on your own. Like right now, uh, everyone give yourself a hug, right? Right. Yeah. So eh, like I'm a, I'm a really good hugger, but this is, this is eh, at best, right? Oxytocin is produced uh, with somebody else. It is, we call this the cuddle drug. And so um, when we'll just say this, when we have sex, Dopamine is released. Dopamine is a good thing. It, it is not all bad. It is not awful. When we have sex, dopamine is released. And there's that old kind of, you know, stereotypical trope or Hollywood thing of like after sex, guys just want to be done and girls want to cuddle. But what that is, is that is actually your body, that is your biological chemistry saying, we need to have oxytocin because what oxytocin does is it is like this net for dopamine because we can have dopamine drops when we are just experiencing something by ourselves. That's the plummet. That's the depression. But what oxytocin does is it catches that. So as you're plummeting and we, but if we are with somebody or uh, we are feeling that depression and we're able to talk with somebody or somebody's able to be close to us, it catches us, right? So we have this oxytocin that takes place in relationship. Again, it's that intimacy disorder piece. When we are able to be intimate, again, not just sexually, but relationally, 
that oxytocin is able to be produced, which again, catches us uh, when we start to plummet, when we start um, to fall. It's this difference between self-soothing and relational soothing. People who struggle with an intimacy disorder self-soothe. It's why when they feel that depression, we go to the thing that maybe we're addicted to because I can just do that on my own. I can go to the computer by myself. I can go to the pantry by myself. I don't need anybody else because it's so freaking scary to go to somebody, to reach out, to say I'm hurting, to say I'm overwhelmed. And the fear is what happens inside of us. There's maybe that part of us that says, if you do this, if you share this, if you say that you're hurting, if you say you're overwhelmed, if you say you're struggling with this, nobody will want anything to do with you. You will be looked at as weak. You'll be looked at as not enough. And that shame piece continues to kind of scream in your ear. And shame is the emotion that isolates us. Shame, shame is a horrible motivator. Shame has no benefit whatsoever. The only thing it does is has us turn inward rather than outward. It has a self-soothe rather than relationally soothe. And when we're able to relationally soothe, when we're able to come together uh, as a community, we are able to produce um, that oxytocin. We're able to come together and, and have these relationships that are so, um, that are so beautiful. That's the way God intended, right? You think of Genesis 2 and Adam and Eve and how great it was, right? Like everything was fantastic. God made Eve and we've got Adam and Eve and thing is, things are great, right? They've got, they've got fresh vegetables. That's good. Free range chicken and beef. That's good. Naked spouse. That's good, right? Like this is like the greatest Whole Foods you've ever been to in your entire life, right? Genesis 2 is fantastic. And then what happens uh, in, in Genesis 3? Right? It, for those of you who don't know, Genesis 3 is when, uh, in, in this story, Satan comes and says, you know, if you eat this fruit, you, can, you don't really need God. You can become God yourself. Right? This idea of self-soothing. You can do what you need to do. You don't need somebody else you can just do all this yourself. And so, again, as the story goes, Eve eats the fruit and she's like, hey, this is pretty good, Adam. What do you think? He's like, all right. And then they hear God walking. And what do they do? They make fig leaves and they cover up in shame. They hide themselves. Again, shame is the isolating emotion. They hide themselves. They pull away from God. They lose that intimacy, that intimacy that God has, has wired in us to have to say, let's do this together. We weren't made to do this by ourselves. We weren't made to, to live this life um, by ourselves. But shame continues to come and continues to rob us of that intimacy. So turn to, turn to a, a neighbor. How would you describe shame? What has shame looked like in, in your life? Uh, how have you experienced shame? Take a, take a minute. I know this is pretty vulnerable, but take a minute. What does shame look like?
So uh, a couple people, how would you how would you describe shame? Yeah. So I think sometimes um, shame is an action, and oftentimes it can come out as anger. So you can build that wall between yeah. you and others by being angry, um, maybe saying things that are unkind or pushing Absolutely. away. Absolutely. Someone's trying to reach out and build that relationship. Mm -hmm. You want that wall to be thicker and yes. Yep. Yeah, you are too close. So I'm going to say something that's going to push you away. Um, there's always something underneath anger. Anger is always a secondary emotion. When you get angry, there's always a, a more vulnerable emotion that's underneath. But, uh, but anger, you said it beautifully, is the, th is the emotion that puts up this wall that says, I can't have anybody close to me. You're too close to this wound, this soft spot. And so I'm going to push you away. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? What? How would you describe? How would you describe shame? Mark Barker, my little group, made a very good description. Just talking about uh, shame being a little monster that's ugly and disgusting and just sits inside and eats at you. But as soon as you speak about it, it disappears because it doesn't like to be in the light. Who is that? That's yeah. Person. It's from Brene Brown. Um, she's a shame researcher. Come on, I was just getting ready to talk about her. This is great. You guys are the best. Yeah, it's this, and, and what shame says is like, there's not a little monster inside you. I am the monster. That's, that's what I see when I'm working with people struggling with addiction is I am the monster. That's what shame says. And, and it, uh, that's what causes us to isolate because I can't let you see that. That's why we get angry because I can't let you see me as the monster. I have to push you, I have to push you away. And the, the antidote, again, I was just getting ready to talk about Brene Brown in her book, uh, Daring Greatly, talks about the antidote to shame is vulnerability. It is to be able to say, this is what I'm struggling with. It's to say, this is where I'm hurting. This is where I've hurt people. And to be able to do that is so scary, but it is what it's what we need to do. It's, it's what, hopefully, you know, talking to Nick, it's what this place, the open table, is supposed to be about. There's, he didn't just pick a name out of a hat. I don't know, maybe he did. But my guess is this was very intentional about wanting this place to have a, an open table. What do you think of an open table? I'm able to communicate what's going on. I'm able to share life, and we're able to um, look at each other. Bill at our table talked about it in a really great way. If I'm able to look across the table and I'm able to, to see you as a person and we're able to talk about what's going on in our lives. Vulnerability is what we need to do. It's really freaking scary, but that's what we're, that's what we're called to do. That is what is going to beat shame down is this vulnerability, is for us to see each other in our brokenness. Nobody feels closer to somebody when they're talking about their trophies or how great they are, right? Like how many, how often has somebody said, well, you know, I've done this and do this and I've gotten this award and you're like, oh, wow, I really like this person. I want to spend more time with them. You're like, geez, when, when do I get out of this conversation or how can I fake some kind of injury to, to leave? Um, but how, how refreshing is it when somebody's able to say, I really struggle with this or this was really difficult for me this week, or when this happened, I didn't handle this the best. Those are the moments that I feel closest to people. And we can do, we can do so much better as a people, as a church,
to be vulnerable, to, to, to relationally soothe rather than uh, self-soothe. And the vulnerability is going to be the piece that allows us to do that, that draws us to one another. Brokenness, shame, guys, that is not, that's not the end of our story. That is not our story. We are, we are a people of the resurrection, right? Christ didn't stay in the tomb. He arose. We are a people of redemption. We are a people of vulnerability, of reconciliation, of redemption. And that doesn't happen unless we also have the incarnation of Christ. That, that means uh, God coming down as Christ and to live among us. You know, the message talks about Christ coming in and moving into the neighborhood. That is what happens. That is what we are called to do, to be vulnerable, to share this place that we call the world, Kansas City, and, and to, to live amongst, to be vulnerable with, with one another. And as we eat together, we, we are participating in that. As we break bread together, as we share our lives together, we are doing that. We are participating in the incarnation of Christ. We are living among the people, and we can do that. And that is so hopeful to me to think about a group like this that can be open, that can be vulnerable, and that we get to be a part. We get to participate in the the reconciliation, the redemption of relationships. And that is... That is what we are called to do, and that is uh, hopefully what, what we can do for one another, whether it's whatever kind of addiction it is. We can be intimate. We can be vulnerable, and that is uh, absolutely my charge to myself and to, to us is to, to do that for, for one another. So thank you so much uh, for your time and your conversation.